Welcome to Sex and Politics, a bonus podcast exclusively for Magnum subscribers to the Savage Lovecast. I was so excited when Michelle Goldberg agreed to come on the show. I have been reading Michelle's writing for years. She was a columnist at Slate for a long time, where she wrote a lot of pieces I shared with my followers on Twitter. I would add just two words whenever I was retweeting one of Michelle Goldberg's essays, Required Reading. Goldberg is the author of three books, Kingdom Coming, The Rise of Christian Nationalism, The Means of Reproduction, Sex, Power, and the Future of the World, and The Goddess Pose, The Audacious Life of Indra Devi, the woman who helped bring yoga to the West. If you want a deep understanding of the world we're living in now, read Goldberg's 2006 book, Kingdom Coming, and her 2009 book, Means of Reproduction. Both are as prescient as they are, sadly, even more urgently relevant now than when she wrote them. Goldberg joined the New York Times as an opinion columnist in 2017. She writes about politics, feminism, and abortion with clarity. And somehow, Goldberg, it's her superpower. She manages to be completely honest about where we are and we are not anyplace good without instilling despair. Her recent columns about what anti-choicers and forced birthers did right and what the pro-choice movement can learn from them are, like so many of Michelle Goldberg's columns, required reading. As with all of our sex and politics guests, Goldberg agreed to try her hand at giving some sex advice at the end of the show. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Michelle Goldberg from the New York Times just as much as I did. So, Michelle Goldberg, thank you for coming by. Thank you so much for having me. Obviously, I want to spend a whole lot of time speaking with you about something you've been writing a lot about, which is Dobbs, abortion, and the kind of nightmare world we're all living in right now. Yeah, it is. I mean, it is It is so bad. And I feel like the this this problem of kind of how to exist and find some joy and not let yourself just be blackpilled into an immobilized state of despair is part of the political challenge right now. You wrote a column after the Dobbs decision came down, lessons from the terrible triumph of the anti-abortion movement. I hate to frame a question like this, but what did the anti-choice activists right well partly they just kind of focused on an incredible long game when roe versus wade was decided it wasn't like a hugely controversial bombshell opinion you know it just sort of seemed like that was going to be the new status quo and so they organized over a period of decades to retake power both at the you know, this is kind of a, the boring stuff of politics, that they they worked all of the levers of politics to both seize the kind of levers of power and then change the way power worked in order to insulate themselves from democratic accountability. Democrats don't tend to think with such a long time horizon. You know, you sort of don't see right now a huge investment in trying to win back state houses in time for, say, the 2030 redistricting, which is really what Republicans did. I also think the other thing that the anti-abortion movement did, which the pro-choice movement has done in the past, but I'm not sure it does it so well anymore, is just made converts. The right, I think, is better at making converts. They have a religious base not all of the, I mean, there's nasty people on the right, obviously, and sort yeah. of like vicious infighting. I mean, I, I, I hope that goes without saying. And, and I hope it gets worse. I'd like to see more vicious infighting on the right. 
Right. Certainly. You know, I'm not kind of talking about like the, you know, the the kumbaya quality of the January 6th protesters. But I do think there was a, if you watch the anti-abortion movement, they really focused on outreach in a way that the left has never been that good at and has gotten increasingly bad at. I mean, I wrote in that column something that really struck me from this documentary that I was that I saw about this woman, a kind of pro-choice filmmaker following anti-choice women. And it was it was just a brief scene, but it was a scene of these college kids be doing a training for how to argue about people in a, in Facebook comments in a way that is meant to like persuade people who don't share all your presuppositions. And I just, I feel like, you know, there's, we don't really do that. Instead, it's sort of like, it's not my job to educate you. I mean, Where did that come from? I shouldn't have to educate you became this mantra on the left. I shouldn't have to do the emotional labor. You should educate yourself when that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. It's not how politics works. It's about persuading and bringing people over to your side, which is a often a one-on-one interaction and an a generational project, which is what the Mm -hmm. right did correctly about Roe. They identified it as generational. And the left seems to have this, everyone calls themselves a progressive, but nobody seems to understand that all progress is incremental. And there's this frustration that utopia can't be delivered if we just win one election. But the thing that really drives me crazy is I shouldn't have to educate you. Right. And I I could be wrong. I believe that phrase comes from, or a version of that phrase comes from an Audre Lorde essay. I don't know if if people said things like that before that. And, you know, I think she was using it in a very specific context of an academic conference. I think there really is a thing that she was identifying that's correct of white people in academic context, inviting a couple of black scholars and then expecting them to you know explain racism to everyone or you know sort of explain basic concepts to everyone when people at that level should be up to speed on those concepts but i the problem is the and the problem is so often is the general is the generalizing of these intra-academic arguments into the broader space of politics where sort of by definition you shouldn't be in gate using avant-garde intra-left arguments. I think that that's basically what has happened. It's similarly to what happened with emotional labor, right? Emotional labor, they were identifying a very real sociological phenomenon of people for whom women usually, for whom part of their job is, you know, kind of performing friendliness or performing submissiveness. We're talking about in in economic context, right? Like waitresses mm-hmm. have to do a lot of emotional labor um, in right. addition to just schlepping the dishes back and forth. You know, teachers have to do emotional labor. And at some point that made the leap into just kind of any sort of burdensome interpersonal interaction is like rebranded as a form of oppression. Which, you know, I came out 40 fucking years ago (laughs) and I performed the emotional labor of answering over and over and over again for every single member of my enormous extended Irish Catholic family, the offensive question, who's the woman, (laughs) right? Who's the woman in your relationship? Over and over and over again, I benefited from answering that question and explaining Mm -hmm. it to them until they got it, which, you know, for all my efforts to be articulate about it and come up with great arguments, it was finally with one aunt 
grabbing, you know, the salt and pepper shaker sets from her cabinet and setting two salt shakers next to each other and saying, who's the pepper? <laughs> like, there's no pepper in this pairing, right? There's no woman in my relationship. And she finally got it. But but sometimes I think when the left, when people, I, I think, abuse that phrase, and you're right to point out that what's meritorious about it or what was smart about it or, or, or the context in which it applies, but the abuse of it is this idea that there's nothing in it for you to do the emotional labor of an exasperation going and grabbing your aunt's salt and pepper shakers, right? I benefited from her breakthrough and ability to see my relationship for what it was. I think there's two things happening at the same time, right? Because on the one hand, my guess is that if somebody, if there was a way at the time for you to have like conceptualized these discussions that you were having over and over and over again as, right, if, if, some, if there was a, if somebody had theorized that as burdensome, you, that you probably would have related to that, right? You probably didn't love having these conversations over and over and over again. And it's also true that there's people who feel entitled to your time and energy. I mean, your family is a little bit different, right? Because you do actually mm. have family obligations. There are, you know, if you're a woman on the internet, there are people who feel entitled to start arguments with you and feel entitled to a response. And, you know, at a certain point, it's like, it's not my, it's, it's not my job to educate you. I know that women get that worse on the internet. I, I frequently get that too, where somebody, I don't know from Adam or Eve, hurls a question at me. And then the fact that I didn't drop any, everything to respond to their question, or as has happened a couple of times, an open letter. Mm -hmm. And, and I didn't take the time to respond because I have a job and I can't just drop everything and write a response to some just dumb open letters addressed right. to me was held up as, as something a, a failure of mine a flaw in my character that I wasn't willing to engage so I, I have some sympathy for what women go through on the internet right and so again I think that what happens is that people are responding to this soup to this you know irritating phenomenon but using it then to dismiss the value of political persuasion writ large, which is bananas, because that's, you know, and especially you would think that the left and, and kind of left-leaning people having, you know, dominating creative fields, dominating literary fields, you know, being, you would think, well-versed in media should be better at persuasion, you know, should have creative ways to do it. And there's just a sense, I think, and I, f I hate talking about this stuff sometimes because I know it's such a middle-aged lament about kids today. Um, mm -hmm. But, right, there is a sense that since you shouldn't have to do this work, since we should be so much further along than we are in terms of social progress, that it's somehow an unfair imposition on you and that people who don't already share all your priors are so hopeless that it's barely even worth trying to bring them along. And I think both of us have at various points, like done canvassing in this country and reported in very, you know, in many, many different parts of this country. And there's just not enough down the line progressives to mm -hmm dominate politics in this country like you just you have to bring some of those people along to to do anything you know I'm, I'm about to head to Kansas to um report on the referendum they're trying to change the constitution to allow for more for for more abortion restrictions and it's going to be the first big 
post Roe v. Wade vote. You only win that vote by winning some narrow slice of people who approved of the Dobbs decision. And so you have to find ways to to find some other sorts of common ground. But we don't want to lay the overturning of Roe or the Dobbs decision, overturning of Casey, at the feet of the left for just failure to persuade, failure to engage. There was a stolen Supreme Court seats, a rigged system. Absolutely. Uh, the Senate being an anti-democratic institution, right. the Electoral College. And then you add on top of that, I shouldn't have to win the argument. It's actually doubly important that you win the argument in a system that's already rigged against you. It's crucial. Well, yes. No, absolutely. I mean, I would never. Yes, this was in terms of sort of what the again, what the right got right. They were, you know, it was this long march of capturing institutions and then fortifying them so that, you know, they couldn't be recaptured by normal democratic processes. You know, you can Mm -hmm. you can you can put the sort of point of like where everything went wrong. I mean, in some ways, maybe it was in 2000 when Democrats didn't fight harder against that stolen election. And, you know, a huge amount of catastrophe is. We did hit George W. Bush's limousine with an egg, though. And that I think that had happened at a presidential. <laughs> right. So there's like a huge amount of a huge amount of catastrophe is downstream from that. So, yes, obviously. I mean, but I think you're right that. Progressives are both outnumbered and at a structural disadvantage. And so you I think you have to do two things at once. One is try to challenge, you know, do the long, long work of trying to challenge these underlying structural factors by adding a couple of states, you know, hopefully reforming the filibuster, adding seats, you know, inshallah to the Supreme Court. And then at the same time, well, both to get any of those things done in the long run, but also just in the short run to prevent the most sadistic and calamitous version of abortion bans, because we're not getting Roe back anytime soon. And we seem to be, we seem to, those, the most calamitous possible outcomes are here. Women being denied care during miscarriages, women with ectopic pregnancies, not being able to obtain the care they need, which in the case of an ectopic pregnancy is an abortion. And it seems as if we've come perilously close already a a few times to women losing their lives because doctors in states that now have abortion bans are telling them that there's still a fetal heartbeat that can be detected and there's nothing that they can do except watch them get sicker and sicker until there's no longer a fetal heartbeat. It feels like we're two or three more news cycles away from a woman dying. Yes. And this is what I think I and people who follow reproductive rights and particularly people who've reported on reproductive rights internationally all to some extent predicted. I mean, I had a piece come out maybe last year, certainly way before the Dobbs decision saying that, you know, the the post-Roe America, is it going to be like pre-Roe America? It's going to be worse for many different reasons. And if you have spent time in countries where abortion is, you know, where abortion is illegal, you both see cases of women being denied proper treatment for miscarriages. I mean, you already saw some elements of that in America before all this in Catholic hospitals. There's Mm -hmm. been a lot of medical reports about miscarriage mismanagement in Catholic hospitals where they wouldn't intervene as long as there was a fetal heartbeat or women would get 
transferred, which in which case you lose, you know, hours, but you lose hours as opposed to days, right? There's, there's somewhere else to go. So I think that it was obvious that this was where we were going. I've been pretty shocked by how quickly and how, by qu- how quickly we've gotten here and how severe, it, severe it's been. I mean, I didn't think you would see this number of horror stories within three weeks. Speaking of persuasion, arming people with arguments like those right-wing anti-abortion activists did, they trained people to jump into comments threads and engage with people who are willing to engage with them about abortion and try to turn abortion supporters into anti-choice folks. I spent some time this weekend with a bunch of people in their 20s and 30s who are so frustrated that the 50-seat majority in the Senate and Dems having bare control of the House and the White House hasn't fixed everything. That, you know, they haven't codified Roe. They haven't done this, they haven't done that. And the lesson they take away that I listen to people, you know, tell me and like I'm the old boomer in the room. And so anytime I tried to jump in with like, oh, well, I got sort of dogpiled, was that they just, it's not worth it to vote for Democrats because here we worked so hard to give Dems full control, House, Senate, White House, and we're not getting what we want. You know, we didn't get Medicaid for all. We didn't get this. We didn't get that. Therefore, it's not worth it. It's not worth the effort to vote for Democrats. Is what is literally what right. I was being told by 20 I mean, I think that there's a lot of that going around. And I both find it really frightening and really frustrating, although I certainly understand the despair and I understand the extent to which our system just feels like you know, it feels like there's this boa constrictor just, you know, strangling democracy. And there's, you know, I talk to all sorts of people and nobody really has a a solid answer or a clear path out of the morass that we're in. And so I do understand the frustration with like, you have to vote for Democrats to forestall the worst outcomes. And also you're naive for expecting Democrats to be able to forestall the worst outcomes, right? Like I understand why that drives them (laughs) That drives me but, crazy to hear you put right. it so succinctly. So, you know, even though you do, like I am very much a vote blue no matter who person. And I also just feel like when you get to be, you know, I'm not sure how I'm in my 40s. I'm not sure how old you are. But like you go through a few of these cycles of like progressives saying that parties are so much the same. It doesn't matter. You know, you see it with Nader. You see it. You see it yeah. every couple of years. And then inevitably some like ghoulish Republican is elected and then everybody realizes, you know, everybody who sort of flirted with a third party before, if not everybody, a lot of people who flirted with a third party before says, okay, no, we now need to get back on board and like just elect the Democrat and end this, this, this disaster. But memories are short. And so it's, it seems very cyclical to me. And it seems hypocritical to listen to people complain and say, there's no difference between Democrats and Republicans while clearly very cognizant of the fact that the last three appointments to the Supreme Court wouldn't be sitting there if a Democrat had been in office, if Trump hadn't been elected president by a minority of voters in the United States, losing the popular vote. That's the thing that always just flabbergasts me. We don't just have to win. We have to win hugely, as Trump might say. Well, that's, I mean, this is a disaster, right? When you have a system in which you have to basically win every election by substantive margins, your system is in crisis. Isn't democratic. 
Right. And so I would argue personally with anybody who has this attitude, I think this, you know, kind of despair and, and cynicism and nihilism is really a huge political problem. But I also understand it. And I also think that politicians have some responsibility to try and demonstrate to people that they are fighting for them and that mm. they are, you know, and that they are sort of trying to use whatever levers of power they have within a jammed system to advance the objectives of the people who are voting for them. I mean, and there's things that I think that are, you know, that the Biden administration is doing that aren't getting as much attention as they deserve, but it, you know, I think if the Biden administration had been ready, we obviously all knew this decision was coming. If they had been ready with a bunch of executive orders that they were going to sign, you know, that Friday or that Monday, as soon as Dobbs came down, it might, I think, have forestalled this sense that, you know, the sky is falling and, and nobody seems to be rising to the moment. Do you take comfort in the existence of medication abortion. I had Dr. Jen mm-hmm. Gunter on the show recently, and she wrote a piece, uh, her Substack of Agenda, that I thought was just brilliant, saying we shouldn't be waving hangers over our heads or carrying mm-hmm. signs with hangers at them at these protests now. Because what a, you know, my summary, you know, my take on that is what a hanger says is I'm afraid, but the pills should be the symbol right now. Because what the pill says is fuck you. I can get this in the mail, I can put it in my pocket, I can carry it across state lines and you can't stop us from accessing safe self-administered abortions used to Mm -hmm. be dangerous self-administered abortions that's what a hanger symbolizes do you find as much comfort in the existence of these medications now uh as other people are taking yeah definitely i mean when i say so i should be clear what i mean when i say that i think things are going to be worse i think the things that are going to be worse are both the amount of surveillance that's possible because of digital technology but also you know pre-row abortion was a crime abortion wasn't the crime of murder right it was its own discreet there wasn't this decades of kind of fetal personhood legislation that had been attempt you know in attempts to recodify people who kill a fetus as murderers so that you know now you have women who've been arrested and charged with manslaughter for trying to kill themselves when they're pregnant you know or for taking drugs when they're pregnant and there being a late miscarriage or a stillbirth that was not as much of a thing pre-Roe versus Wade. And so, and there was also, I think, before Roe versus Wade, much more, in general, there was much more deference to experts and and deference to doctors, although, you know, obviously not enough. It's one reason that doctors were one of the biggest groups um, lobbying for changes to the abortion laws. So I think that you'll the, the criminal justice response to people having either illegal abortions or ambiguous miscarriages is going to be more vicious and more draconian. But 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 I do think that the pill makes a huge difference in terms of safety. Absolutely. And I agree with Jen Gunter about the coat hanger being a somewhat outdated s- symbol because yes, 
people are going to be getting pills either from other states. They might be getting them from Aid Access, which is this group in Vienna um, that was founded by a woman named Rebecca Gompertz, who's the person who used to run Women on Waves. So she used to sail her, she used to sail a boat off, and people are talking about doing boats as well, but she used to sail a boat off the shores of places where abortions were illegal and do medication abortions on the boats. She's experimented with drones to deliver abortion pills, and now she's going to be doing it through the mail. There's other organizations that will send you pills anywhere in the country as well. So that will be a game changer in terms of safety. The, the There's uh, still dangers, though. Sometimes a medication abortion, you need follow-up care in the hospital, and getting that care is going to be really dangerous in and the women need to know states. that doctors is... Jen Gunter and others have pointed out cannot tell the difference between a miscarriage that's a naturally occurring miscarriage and a miscarriage yes. that's the result of a self-administered abortion. And you do not have to disclose that and you shouldn't. Um, Brett Kavanaugh, ugh, his name curdles in my mouth. He said in his, I believe, concurrence in Dobbs that women who live in states that are going to ban abortion can travel and that this isn't an issue. Mm -hmm. They can travel to blue states, abortion sanctuary states, you called them in a recent column. And that seems to have inspired a bunch of legislators in red states to, to start working to prevent women from traveling to blue states. Well, I think they were already doing that. And that's sort of what he was responding to being like, you know, don't worry your pretty little heads about this. Maybe, maybe that's what he's doing. Like, you don't have to worry about this. Don't, you know, don't do anything about it, which I think is what Alito was doing in his in the majority opinion when he said, we're not coming for same-sex marriage, we're not coming for birth control, we're not going to overturn Griswold or Obergefell, don't you worry. And I took that to mean we are coming for Obergefell and Griswold, we just don't want you organizing <laughs> about it now. We want you to let your guard down and not worry about these things so that we can have an easier time yanking them back from you. It was only Thomas in his uh, concurrence who was honest about his intentions. But when you, you know, the surveillance state that you just talked about, when you see that, how does the country not fall apart if they're preventing women from traveling from one state to another? How do they, are they going to pregnancy test before a woman can get on an airplane and fly from Dallas to Los Angeles? So I think that the short answer is no. That's I, I would be surprised if you saw that, although I wouldn't be surprised if you saw people, you know, kind of pulled over at state borders being like, you know, what are you doing so far from from where you I wouldn't be surprised if you saw that. But I think it more likely it will be through kind of bounties like you saw. And and part In of the Texas. thing is that the Supreme Court might be saying that you know we're that you can't ban interstate travel but at the same time they've also said that the supreme court is powerless to intervene in statutes that are crafted this way without a you know kind of a clear defendant and so i think you might see you know bounties for somebody who brought a woman or a girl out of state or you know somebody who went out of state, certainly for the doctors and, you know, sort of anybody who facilitated an abortion out of state. And you're going to have all of these conflicts about, you know, Texas trying to indict doctors from New Mexico, New Mexico refusing to extradite, um, you know, South Carolina, I, be I believe it's South Carolina, I should double check, but um, 
has a, a bill that would criminalize publishing information about self-administering abortion. And so, you know, what happens when, if I write a column about how to self-administer an abortion, do I then, you know, want to make sure I don't cross the border into South <laughs> Carolina? Maybe. My I vacation plans are ruined because I've done several podcasts on how to, <laughs> you know, with advice on how to self-administer an abortion. And you think, okay, how does that possibly survive a First Amendment challenge? But then you remember what Alito wrote in Dobbs, which was basically, well, this is abortion, so it's a special case. And you could see them applying that to a First Amendment challenge, making it criminal to publish information on self-administering abortions because abortion, because abortion is special. Right. Well, I just wouldn't, I have no faith in sort of any first principles surviving the you know, kind of political, mo politically motivated decision making of this court. And so, yeah, I just think that when you have this kind of tension between states or kind of radically different regimes in different states, you know, it's a fundamental test of the unity of this country, right? Like we don't really, I mean, and, and in some senses, you know, maybe I think gay people have experienced some of this, like, you know, pre-Obergefell and pre-Lawrence v. Texas, right, where your rights are sort of radically different depending on where in the country you are. Obviously, you know, Black people, this was, you know, before, um, during the Jim Crow era and, you know, further back, back towards, you know, the Fugitive Slave Act. But it's something that we, that we're just sort of unused to. And at a time when I think there's already so much entropy in the country and such like, you know, kind of centrifugal forces pulling things apart, I don't see how it doesn't radically accelerate that. One other issue that I wanted to ask you about really quickly, and we're running out of time, uh, our gerontocracy, you recently wrote a column saying that Joe Biden was too old to run for president again. He's 79. Pelosi's 82. Dianne Feinstein isn't there anymore. It seems that we have a bigger gerontocracy problem in Dem circles on the left than the right does. What, why, why are all of our leaders so elderly and why won't anybody ever go away? So I think people w won't go away because people find power intoxicating. They talk themselves into believing that nobody else can do the job as well as they can. That, you know, they talk the they talk themselves, I think, into believing that they're irreplaceable. And I actually can't identify exactly what it is about the Democratic Party that has gotten so bad in recent years at, you know, like sort of why things have become so stagnant at the top. I mean, that obviously didn't used to be true you know democrat if you look at sort of winning democratic candidates you know going back to jfk they were overwhelmingly pretty young i mean i guess you know an example a counter example is lbj but i'm pretty sure he was like 56 when he when he won so we've had a lot of kind of young Clinton was young with, obama was young Clinton was young obama was young carter was young um you know the democrats were like the party of youth and freshness and and vitality and they should properly still be if you look at just the you know kind of age breakdowns of the two parties but the leadership hasn't reflected that and it's just because you know 
a handful of politicians. I mean, I think it's probably more complicated than this, but you know, you have a handful of politicians and funders who just have a lock on things and don't trust the people coming after them. Were you for Bernie back in the day? I mean, I have never believed that this country would elect Bernie Sanders. Like, I just don't. It could, you know, if we go back, could it, could Bernie have been more electable than Hillary? Was it a mistake to think that this country would elect Hillary Clinton? You know, perhaps, but I just have always thought that, like, the socialism thing, that certain independents especially saw as a sign of his outsider maverick nature when he wasn't actually on the cusp of of winning power, just that the, like, red baiting and... Mm you know, kind of appeals to people's, you know, kind of terror about their financial situation. I always thought that that would be overwhelming. I never believed in Bernie's theory of we're going to bring that there are all these non-voters that secretly agree with the left wing of the Democratic Party and they just need to be mobilized and given a reason to vote. And I think the primaries, particularly the last primary, sort of show that that is not in fact the case, right? That there's not like a hidden reserve of super progressive, but you know, super progressive non-voters. Would you agree with the statement that we're essentially a center-right country and that's another thing that Dems have to work against or have working against them? I don't know if we're a center-right country. I don't think, I think it's more complicated than that. I think that you have a lot of people in this country who are fearful of social change and are more likely to embrace social change when it's presented in a sort of conservative package, right? I mean, that was gay marriage was sort of an appeal to traditional conservative values. Obama was very good at speaking the language of traditional conservative values. You know, but I also think that just in terms, if you look issue by issue, you know, economically, we're definitely a center-left country. And, you know, in terms of foreign policy, we're, I think, a, a center-left country. And even on abortion, you know, it's not that the right has a majority by any means. They just have a majority in the, in states that have disproportionate power. I had one last question for you before we mm -hmm. got to, we always make everybody who comes on, uh, give some sex advice, turn your hand fat. If Biden's not going to run in 2024, if he can be talked out of it or realizes that he is too old, who would you support? Right now, if you had to back somebody in the primary, who would it be? That's a hard question because I have like, I mean, I think if Kamala Harris can turn things around, you know, can sort of both turn like her own operation and some of the political dynamics that have made her more unpopular than Biden, you know, that she would be an obvious successor. But right now, I don't think she is. And and I think there's also a question of like, who in an ideal world do I want to be president, which is different than like, who do I think is this? There's a huge gap between that and who do I think yeah. is the strongest candidate. I would love it if we it could be somebody like Gretchen Whitmer. And she's somebody who is obviously one in Michigan. She's someone who is taking real action on you know, on reproductive rights. And, you know, I just, whether or not, like how, like that's, but that's a very different question. It's always funny when people start thinking about who they want to endorse and then they start weighing like, you know, who they'd really love to be president with, you know, who might 
get to be president or might win an election. Mm -hmm. And and the hesitancy is like, I don't want to be too political about the politics of this, but we have to be political about the politics of it, right? And who's politically viable. But it does seem like Harris ain't it. I think it's unfair when people point to her presidential campaign as disorganized and not a success because Biden ran several disorganized, not a success presidential campaigns before he ran a successful one or had a successful one run for him. But yeah, I don't look at Harris. I just thought I was counting the seconds after I asked you that before Harris's name came out of your mouth. Mm-hmm. I think that's very telling. That no, and when, I don't think and I don't think she's really meeting the moment, right? Like this is a moment when there's such, you know, she has such an obvious place for leadership on this particular issue, right? And you could imagine somebody giving some really soaring issues about this kind of liberty that has just been stripped from women all over this country and for whatever reason that's not what she's doing or that's not what her campaign is is been able to do what do you think of the gavin newsom i like gavin newsom and i think gavin newsom is someone who this is what i think democrats need to be doing in terms of showing themselves to be fighting right in terms of showing themselves to be using the levers of power at their disposal to shore up the rights that are so important to them. I thought it was amazing when he said that California was going to start producing its own insulin. We need more of that sort of thing. And he's engaged in a kind of campaign of performative assholery that's very like the rights politics of performative assholery. We don't do that. Like he's putting up billboards in Florida, basically saying mm-hmm. fuck you, DeSantis, taking out full page ads in newspapers in Texas, basically saying fuck you, Greg Abbott. And his rhetoric has gotten so much more confrontational and fiery. That and people want to feel like someone's fighting, fighting for them for and sticking them. up for them against all these bullies. I mean, I think if you look at how, and we'll see how the campaign, you know, we'll see how the election goes. But if you look at the John Fetterman campaign, right, the mm-hmm. reason it's such a delight is that you've, you know, you have this kind of like big, strong man, you know, standing up for himself and kind of standing up for you against these weasels. Yeah. And, and you know, politics is about addition not subtraction like obama said and if you can pull you know a handful a tiny percentage of couple of points from the right just from folks who are into the trolling and into the assholery let's match them asshole for asshole and neutralize the who's the bigger asshole vote because there is kind Mm -hmm. of right now in america this attraction to the politician who's the bigger asshole and trump is the bigger asshole desantis is the bigger asshole and i feel like we're gonna have to match him I, I don't know if i don't know if it's exactly about being an asshole as much as it is about being a like as being a fighter right i mean and you know so maybe being an asshole is part of that but i think it's more people are responding to i mean it's obviously actually in the case of trump and desantis people are responding to them being assholes but i also think there are people who just respond to who seems tough, who seems confident, right? Who seems unapologetic versus who seems to be, you know, kind of overproduced and carefully watching their words. And I think people, there's a lot of people who would rather vote for somebody who has strong conviction, even if it's not their personal conviction, than somebody who seems sort of vacillating. I'm kind of into this Gavin Newsom unbound thing. You know, he's a career politician. (laughs) He's a lieutenant governor of California for many years, mayor of San Francisco, used to be married to Kimberly Guilfoyle, which is almost mind-bending to contemplate. But he's 
bringing the fight in a way that, you know, Bob Dole said that a, a liberal is someone who won't take their own side in an argument. Mm -hmm. And I've certainly felt that, you know, on the one hand, on the other hand, and like... Right, and that's my natural disposition. I mean, that's sort of, you know, <laughs> what I do by by instinct, but that's not what people want in their politicians. No, and we don't need any more Dems who are going to steel man Republican arguments for them. We need mm -hmm. Dems who are going to attack. And I kind of see that in Newsom right now. And I'm a little excited about him, but it's a bubble and we'll see. I've kept you so long. We have a sex question I'm going to play now for you. And then uh, we'll see how you're a great opinion columnist in the New York Times. Let's see how well you would do if you had a filthy sex advice column. I have, there's no chance that I could do what you do. But go on. Okay. Hi, Dan. Your intro in episode 820 reminded me of an issue that I'm having with a friend regarding uh, revenge porn. An old friend of mine, problematic, a little bit of a contrarian, self-described feminist with a lot of like problematic tendencies towards women and women he's dated, had a complex relationship with someone on the East Coast. And I mean, complex such that he decided to distribute material that they made together for OnlyFans to her new boyfriend, employer, under the guise of warning them, big air quotes right now. And he doesn't seem to think that this was an issue, but when I found out about this, I was deeply disturbed and was like, I really don't think you should be giving any material to anyone. I mean, first of all, he didn't call it revenge porn. He said, I'm going to distribute this stuff that we made for OnlyFans. And I'm like, that is revenge porn. And you live in a state where that's illegal. Not only is it illegal, it's wrong. <laughs> um, and he, he seemed to think that it was perfectly fine given the challenges he dealt with in the relationship and that he was going to go through with it. Lots of his friends, both men and women who he didn't name. We have a lot of mutual friends, but I was like, these people that I care about too agree with you. He said that they were in agreement with him. And I guess it's a year later, he and I have had a very patchy um, friendship since then. I've been really distant. I, I've been meaning to talk to him about how fucked up the whole thing was. And he thinks that I'm going radio silent for other reasons. He doesn't understand how bad this is that he would do this, even if a partner did something just totally egregious to him. Granted, they made material together, which I guess he didn't know was going to go on OnlyFans, but had him in it. I don't know to what extent. Like if his face was, I don't know. He has tattoos, so maybe, you know, that could have been a thing. But anyway, I just wanted to get your thoughts on this. Should I dump this friend? <laughs> I mean, I want to in some ways. Um, on the other hand, my partner is like, look, people make mistakes. You know, want to give him the benefit of the doubt. I'm like, this guy's a dick. He's basically a dick. So I just would love to hear your thoughts on this. I mean, definitely dump the friend, right? Like immediately. And maybe the boyfriend, too. That's what I was going to say. Like, the friend sounds like a, I mean, he, he sounds like a dick, but he also just sounds like a sociopath, right? And the idea that he, that he doesn't understand that, no, he does understand. I think he's just like this, this contrarian. I, I, my suspicion is that he does understand and he's just fucking with you. But regardless, you don't have to justify ending a relationship with somebody who does something so intrusive and egregious um but i and i also would in general i'm a fan of redemption and giving people second chances but this doesn't even sound like somebody who's asked 
asking for redemption because he's not admitting that he did anything wrong. And the fact that your partner is sticking up for him thinks he should still be in your life, that to me is a big red flag. And the gaslighting of women by the culture where there, this poor woman thinks she needs somebody's permission to end this relationship that makes her uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Mine, yours, her boyfriend, who I call her, I think you should tell him too. And I wouldn't trust him with any photos or videos of intimate moments that he's got on his phone if that's his attitude toward this guy pushing that stuff out there. Sending it to your ex's mom, current boyfriend, employer, to punish them for, because the relationship was, you say, complex. All relationships are complex, and most of them end. And there's no, like, carve-out in revenge porn laws for I was upset about how the relationship I also, ended. yeah, I also hope that, I'm curious about the ex-girlfriend here. Like, clearly, she must know that this has been sent out. I mean, I hope that she has a good law- a, a good lawyer. There are some excellent lawyers out there who specialize in this stuff. And I hope that she is contacting one of them. Michelle Goldberg, opinion columnist for the New York Times. Thank you so much for coming on uh, the show with me. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Oh, thanks so much. All right. That was my conversation with Michelle Goldberg. Thank you for listening, everybody. You can and should be reading Michelle Goldberg's columns at the New York Times. She also has an extensive archive on Slate that is worth your time if you want to dive in. She's on Twitter at Michelle in Brooklyn. That's Michelle with two L's. Thanks again for listening and thank you for being a Magnum subscriber to the Savage Lovecast.